Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is the Vedic tradition and UFOs. My guest is Michael Cremo, who is co-author with Richard Thompson of The Hidden History of the Human Race and also Forbidden Archaeology. I might mention that Richard Thompson, his co-author, has also written a book that we'll be touching on today called Alien Identities. Michael Cremo is also author of Human Devolution, as well as a collection of his scientific papers called My Science, My Religion. Michael is based in California, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Michael. It's a real pleasure to be with you once again. Good to be with you, Jeffrey. We'll be talking about the Vedic tradition and, and UFOs, and I think it's pretty generally known that flying vehicles are used uh, widely by uh, not only the uh, devas and deities, but the asuras and many uh, levels of beings that inhabit the Vedic universe. And I think it might be a useful thing to begin by talking about how the Vedic worldview is is different than uh, the Western worldview. Well, yes, it's different, Jeffrey, in that it's a more consciousness-based picture of the universe uh, than the Western concept, which is fairly materialist in its ontology. You know, that matter is uh, primary and consciousness develops somehow or other from matter in a way they've not explained yet. But the Vedic cosmos is based on consciousness, that matter comes from consciousness rather than the other way around, that consciousness comes from uh, matter. So it's also a very personal personalist universe uh, where personality, intelligence, individuality are all built into the structure of the cosmos. So the entire thing is inhabited and there are communication channels between the different types of conscious beings that exist in the different parts of the Vedic cosmos. And among those means of communication are uh, things such as flying machines, uh, spacecraft, things like that. So that, that that's the basic difference. One of the things that strikes me uh, is, is, of course, that uh, Western thought is influenced by the Judeo-Christian tradition, which is monotheistic, and the Vedic tradition is, is, I guess you would have to say, it's polytheistic. Well, but in a special sense, there is a monotheistic element to it in that 
there is one ultimate being of pure consciousness that is the source of all the others. Now, all of the others uh, may exist with different levels of powers and abilities. Uh, and those with human abilities are on one level, but there are superhuman beings, according to the Vedic cosmology. They're called devas, which in some ways corresponds to the Judeo-Christian concept of angels as beings intermediate between the supreme conscious intelligent being, God, if you will, and ordinary humans, for example. So it's something like that. It, it, you could say uh, that Christianity is in a, some sense polytheistic if you count the angels as supernatural beings. So uh, similar similar ideas there in the Vedic cosmology. In fact, one of the main themes one sees in many religions, uh, including the Zoroastrian tradition and Christianity, is this idea of a, a war between the good forces and the evil forces taking place in, in these hyperspace or supersensual realities. And, and that also seems to be part of the Vedic tradition. Absolutely. Uh, one thing to keep in mind about the Vedic tradition is that everyone, every being, is ultimately a being of pure consciousness. That is the natural state of a conscious living entity. It's meant to exist on a level where there's no birth, no death. However, we find ourselves in another position at the present moment in the material universe which is there for two purposes. One is to allow us to enjoy separately from God, to pursue our own interest and in competition with others who are doing the same thing. And the competition can get quite intense. So that is uh, one type of living entity that exists in the material cosmos material cosmos also offer, offers opportunities for uh, the souls here, the conscious entities here, to come to their natural position and exist in a realm beyond birth and death and conflict and competition. So those who are striving for that are called suras, means saintly people. And the, those who are going in the opposite direction are called asuras, not saintly people. And they come into conflict. There, there have been universal conflicts that have gone on for ages. And sometimes the earth planet is involved in those conflicts between the forces of good, you might say, and the forces of darkness. 
One of the most unique features, I think, of the Vedic tradition is that it, it has always recognized the immenseness of the universe long before uh, Western traditions uh, really acknowledged how, how large the universe is. And I gather that uh, according to the Vedic tradition, there are hundreds of thousands of different kinds of uh, humanoid beings who live on, on other planets or in other hyperspatial dimensions. Yes, and even other universes, there's not just one, according to the Vedic understanding. There's an expansion of the original personality of Godhead uh, called Mahavishnu, who is responsible for manifesting the material universes. This Mahavishnu, it is stated, lies sleeping on the cosmic ocean, the causal ocean, and he's dreaming. And as he breathes out, millions of universes expand from the pores of the skin of his body. And when he breathes in, the universes come back into his body. And when the universes are manifest, he places, he injects with his glance souls that are fit for existing in the material world rather than the spiritual world. So each one of those breaths lasts 311 trillion years. So you're right. It, there are immense periods of time, vast cycles of creation and destruction, not just of one universe, but of many. It's a real challenge to our current mentality. Many people might think that uh, like uh, so much that we see in mythology, it's meant to be taken figuratively or it's the product of uh, poetic imagination and primitive mythological thinking. But uh, today we have a whole host of uh, fringe phenomenon. You've reported extensively on the fringe phenomenon known in archaeology, but also in the field of UFO research we have and, and parapsychology, all these fringe phenomena that seem to be in accord with the uh, Vedic tradition. Yes, uh, absolutely. Of course, one has to proceed step by step, but I'll, I'll even point out that modern cosmology and astrophysics are have been moving in the Vedic direction. Now there's uh, the concept of the multiverse or many worlds or many universes theory, which is something that was always there in the Vedic cosmology. You, you could say it's just a coincidence, but uh, uh, I think there are too many of these coincidences, like the idea of an expanding universe that's there in the Vedic cosmology when the universes emerge from the Mahavishnu, they're in small seed-like form, and then they're energized by the glance of Mahavishnu 
and they expand. So the expanding universe is something that modern cosmology has come up with, modern astrophysics. Uh, and also a contracting universe. They call it the Big Bang and the Big Bounce. That, yeah, the universes expand and then they contract again. That, that idea is also there in uh, the Vedic cosmology. And as I said, modern science has, uh, no, no comprehensive, uh, understanding of the origin of consciousness. And the Vedic cosmology, it's built in to the whole system. And many modern cosmologists are starting to think about, uh, that consciousness may be a property of matter. They're, they're, they're trying to accommodate it in that way. Well, if I were to look at the uh, Vedic tradition and ask myself, how is it distinguished from other ancient traditions that have given us maps or pictures of the universe? One of the first things that would come to mind is the uh, science uh, and practice of yoga and meditation seems to be uh, much more highly developed in the uh, Vedic traditions uh, and its offshoot of Buddhism than one would find in uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition or shamanistic traditions or uh, other uh, religious variations? Uh, you're right that the concepts may be high, more highly developed in uh, the Vedic system of thought and practice, but uh, they are also features of the worldviews of other wisdom traditions. You know, in, in one of my books, Human Devolution, I included a, a chapter which I called Cross-Cultural Study of Cosmologies, where I looked at uh, about 40 of the world's wisdom traditions and cultures uh, widely separated in time and space. And practically every one of them has similar features in the sense that uh, they involve some acknowledgement of the primacy of consciousness and personality in the universe, that, that we're part of a whole cosmic hierarchy of beings, that there are connections between terrestrial humans and beings that exist on higher levels of reality, that there is a conscious self that can travel out of the body, uh, as you said, shamanic journeys and other types of things. So although you may notice some differences of degree, I, I think some of the basic elements are, are there and practically all of these uh, Wisdom traditions, and I think that's because they're looking at the same reality from different points of view. Well, with regard to uh, UFO phenomena, I think uh, one can find examples of uh, flying devices. Uh, 
in pretty much every tradition, uh, in particular folk traditions, but uh, they're very elaborate in, in the Vedic tradition. In fact, they're so elaborate, one uh, is inclined to think it's the, the product of a fanciful imagination. For example, the, uh, the Viminas uh, that are described, the flying machines in the Vedic culture, some of them are thought to be as, as large as, as a temple itself or a palace itself, flying palaces, even flying cities. Yes, uh, that's a fact. Such things exist. And, you know, some modern inventors and scientists and others are proposing such things. You know, of course, it may be in the realm of science fiction, but to me it's very interesting that if you, if one were to propose, well, these descriptions are simply imagination, well, it's kind of interesting that the things that are imagined turn out to be things that people today either observe in a modern UFO phenomenon or uh, that they correspond to uh, the kinds of things that our scientists and technologists are proposing to build, actual technologies that, that we have. It, I think it's a important to realize that there are different kinds of vimanas described in the ancient Vedic text. Uh, the, the basic cosmological division in the Vedic cosmology is that there's a terrestrial level uh, with ordinary physical elements. There's a more subtle intermediate realm with subtle mental and intellectual energies. And then there's the realm of pure consciousness or spirit. And each level has its different kind of vimana or craft. Some are material, made of material elements, technology. Others are more subtle, produced by yogic mystic powers. And some are of a completely different nature, totally non-material. I gather that some of the vimanas described in the Vedic traditions seem very much like modern airplanes. They have wings uh, like birds. I, I think maybe the wings even flap like uh, birds. I think uh, uh, people have sometimes referred to that as an ornithopter. Yes, there are such things described in... Uh some of the, especially the medieval Sanskrit uh, literature on these things, there are things that resemble modern aircraft. It's stated, for example, that they're, they have wings, they're made of very light wood, and some of the early airplanes that were invented in Western Europe and the United States were also manufactured with very light woods and things like that. So, but what makes the, the medieval Vimanas of uh, India 
interesting is that it said they were powered by mercury-fueled engines, which is kind of interesting. That would be a, a difference. However, there are other Vimanas that resemble not ordinary flying craft with wings, but objects that more resemble some of the UFO, modern UFO kinds of, of, of reports. Uh, for example, the uh, flying machine that was used by the King Shalva, who was on the side of the forces of darkness, to attack the city of Dwarka, which uh, about 5,000 years ago was a center of, you could say, the forces of light and good on Earth, uh, an avatar of God, uh, Krishna, appeared there and was ruling the place. So this uh, Vimana was obtained by King Shalva from a higher being among the Asuras, or the uh, demoniac forces in the universe. It's kind of an early example of interplanetary technology transfer, which many modern UFOlogists talk about, that a lot of our technology has been developed by contact with extraterrestrial beings. So you have things like that. I could go on for a long time about the uh, the mana that King Shalva uh, used to attack the city of Dwarka because it has many features that are currently being developed by modern militaries, for example. Yes, let's let's uh, if you would elaborate on the story, I think that would be quite interesting. So this King Shalva and Asura got this technology from a being called Maya Donova, who was the engineer of the demoniac forces in the universe. So he gave him this uh, Vimana made of metals to attack the city of Dwarka. And he used weapons that in one sense are described as arrows and spears, but in the descriptions that are given, he said it's stated when he released this arrow, it roared through the sky and appeared like a bolt of lightning shooting through the uh, atmosphere. And uh, the weapon was count countered by the forces below in the city of Dwarka with weapons that uh, again, were described as arrows or spears, but they're obviously not a, a thin stick of wood with a metal tip on it. The way that they're described resemble modern anti-missile missiles. So it's uh, really quite interesting. And this craft that Shalva was operating, it it could appear in several places at once, and it could appear and disappear uh, as well from the vision of the uh, defenders of the city below. And this resembles exactly modern UFO reports 
of how these things, they appear and disappear. They have flight movements that are very difficult to account for. And it's also something that we see in modern military technologies. You know, for example, uh, they design nuclear warheads that are attached to intercontinental ballistic missiles that uh, can try to deceive uh, radar and other detection methods by giving out false signals so you don't know which one is the real uh, warhead you know, that needs to be shot down. It's kind of interesting that you know, if you, you would say, well, this is all just imagination, it seems to be imagination that conforms in many ways to things that are being developed these days. Also, this uh, machine, this Vimana, had the ability to project holographic images. So... It's really an interesting kind of story. Krishna was fighting with Shalva, who had King Shalva, who had beamed down from the uh, the mana that was hovering over the city of Dwarka, and at, during uh, the battle, this uh, King Shalva he produced Krishna's father, and he said. I've captured your father, Krishna, and I'm going to cut off his head. Uh, and he did that, held the head up, and then was beamed back up into the, the mana. And then Krishna noticed that the body of his father, so-called, had disappeared, and he understood it, it wasn't a re real body. It was an image projected by the machine. So I, yeah, I, I, I find this fascinating. If it's all just imagination, it's uh, pretty good. At, uh, pretty good. Kind of like Galileo or no, no, Da Vinci, Leonardo Da Vinci. He had a good imagination. He was able to come up with ideas that are just now being manifested in actual physical form. Surely we know that uh, human imagination is a very powerful thing, and uh, many great inventions started out as uh, in, in the imaginary mind of uh, fictional authors. The submarine, for example, uh, was uh, described extensively by Jules Verne before it was ever built in 20,000 leagues under uh, the sea. But the, the sense of from uh, the, the Vedic tradition, and I believe there are many adherents who take it quite literally, is, is that uh, these things actually happened uh, in very ancient times in physical reality as, as we know it. I'm certainly number myself among that category that I think these, these things actually did exist. And one demonstration of that is that even today, very trained observers like military uh, jet pilots, uh, commercial airline pilots and others, 
astronomers, other people with training, have observed and reported such things. So that that to me is a confirmation of the reality of the phenomenon. It's interesting that some of these people who report these things that are uh, described in the ancient Sanskrit writings of India have total lack of familiarity with that literature. They know absolutely nothing about the ancient reports. And the fact that these ancient reports match up with the modern UFO alien abduction types of reports, I think, is a sign that we're talking about something real. Well, as a parapsychologist myself, I'm very interested in the intersection between human psychic abilities or what in the Vedic tradition might be thought of as the cities and uh, UFO phenomenon. I've even uh, done extensive research uh, with an individual I wrote about in a book called The PK Man who said that he uh, had been uh, operated on, his brain had been operated on by alien entities and he was given extraordinary powers. Amongst those powers was the ability to summon UFOs, which he demonstrated on multiple occasions, uh, including for me in very dramatic ways. So, the Vedic traditions seem to go to great lengths to talk about the psychic or psychological dimension of uh, the UFO phenomenon. These are craft, for example, that can be controlled entirely through concentration. Yes, uh, even the craft of uh, Shalva is called Kama Ga. Ga means to go, Kama means by one's will. So, yes, these uh, craft, these demonas could be controlled mentally. And again, this is something that modern military technology is developing. The current generation of fighter aircraft travel at such speeds that it's almost impossible to control them by ordinary movements of hands and feet, you know, to try to control the aircraft. So they, uh, they have tried to develop sensors that allow the pilot to control the craft mentally or by eye movements uh, rather than you know physical physical movements so that that uh, ability was there uh, and as far as the paranormal element goes sometimes even the manufacture of the manas uh, especially by higher beings is in that category. There was the flying city type of Vimana uh, that was manifested by the sage Kardama Muni. There's a description of that in the Bhagavad Purana. It's just mentally he was able to manifest the flying city, and he and his wife uh, went on a journey, a tour of the universe in this Vimana, which was like you, you've mentioned a flying palace. But it, it wasn't made by mining minerals from the earth, refining them into metals in a factory, hammering them together to produce a machine. 
it was produced mentally and it could be controlled mentally. And a really interesting feature of it, I'll note, you know, from the Bhagavad Purana is that within this flying palace, there were gardens and animals and birds. And some of the birds, it's stated directly in the text, were machines. They were robots. And they were so realistic that the living birds would fly up to them and try to interact with them like, like a live bird. And yeah, I, I found it kind of interesting that modern military technology, they develop drones for surveillance. And you know, if you have a, a regular mechanical drone and the people that you're trying to observe see it, they can understand what it is. So the army in particular has developed drones that look like birds. And when they're flying, they get attacked by hawks that, that think they're other birds. So I, I found that kind of interesting that this idea of robot birds so real that real birds approach them is there in the Bhagavad Purana in Sanskrit. And it's also there in latest military technology reports. That's, I find that fascinating. Well, you mentioned that there are different levels in the Vedic tradition. You have the the idea that there are countless planets in which there will be uh, living uh, biological creatures like ourselves, probably humanoid and more or less, and uh, at different levels of technology and levels of spiritual evolution. But then there are these higher beings, the devas, the angelic beings, or the uh, demonic beings, the asuras, and they also have technology, but in addition to their technology, they have powers of the mind itself, cities, to where they can manifest. They don't need technology because of, of their advanced spiritual powers. Yes, that's absolutely true. Um, some of them. And that paranormal aspect is definitely there in the UFO accounts of modern times as well. I, I've been following the UFO field for many years now, and I could see a, a while back that uh, a lot of the UFO researchers were in what we call the nuts and bolts category. They, they were just looking for a mechanical technology made by other human-like beings on other planets. And then some of them began getting into the more paranormal stuff, especially connected with the abduction phenomenon, where people would uh, describe you know, they'd be sleeping at night and they'd wake up and a beam of light would be shining on them and they'd be floated through a wall uh, and up into some kind of craft where they, they were uh, subjected to medical investigations and probes of their bodies and then somehow they would be returned. So that paranormal element began to enter into uh, UFO extraterrestrial types of investigations. And 
that is something that is also, as you pointed out, there in the Vedic conception of things as well. Uh, the ability to manifest these cities or mystic powers, being able to, as you say, travel from level to level and place to place in the universe. And sometimes this involves uh, weird transformations of time and space. You know, for example, in, in the Puranas, there's the story of King Kukudmi, who had a daughter, Ravati, and he was interested in seeing that she found a good husband. He was thinking, well, this prince seems like a good match. Maybe this king, he's pretty young and powerful. He'd be a good match. So he decided, well, let me, let me go up to the planet of Brahma, the chief demigod, chief Sura. And he did that. He went with his daughter up to the planet of Brahma, and he was told by the doorkeeper there, well, he's busy right now, but he'll be right with you in a moment or two. And then Brahma came after a few minutes and asked the king what he wanted. And he said, well, I'm considering different uh, possibilities for a husband for my daughter. And he began listing the names of different kings and princes. And Brahma told him, well, you know, in the small time you've been here, millions of years that pass on earth, and everybody that you're talking about is dead and gone a long time. So anyways, we'll arrange things so you're daughter will find a proper match or soulmate or whatever. And so he went back to Earth after millions of years had passed. One of the other aspects of the Vedic tradition, which does seem to be in accordance with uh, reports from UFO experiencers, is the idea that these UFOs may not necessarily all originate from outer space and other planets. Uh, the thought is that uh, a, a couple of things. There could be parallel dimensions that are essentially right here on Earth, but parallel to the three dimensions we normally experience, or even within the three-dimensional reality we experience, but just somehow hidden beneath the ocean or uh, in caves uh, somewhere or in Antarctica uh, where we haven't yet discovered them. Yes. Well, that gets you into sacred geography, you know, that, you know, there, there can be a geography that contains elements that aren't visible by ordinary human sense perception. And for example, if we look at the Vedic descriptions of even the earthly planetary level of reality, there's a vision of it that's quite different from what we generally perceive. And it's called in this vision, uh, Bhu Mandala, the Earth Circle, which involves uh, our Earth being part of a central island, circular island, or mandala, with a gold mountain in the center of it. 
called Mount Meru. And beyond that, and the, our Earth is just part of that central island of Bumangala, which is inhabited by all kinds of other beings with higher powers, things like that. And then there's uh, a ring ocean around it. And then there's a, a ring island. There's a whole sequence of ring oceans and islands around uh, Jambudweep, which is where our Earth planet is located, according to this sacred geography. And the beings are uh, of a different nature entirely. So, yeah, there may be hidden aspects of even our current level of reality with beings with different sorts of powers that we would regard as mystical somehow and with technologies that may be based on other principles than our, than our own. Yeah, so I, I would say, yes, Jeffrey, perhaps... Uh, there are dimensions to even our present terrestrial reality that we're not fully aware of. So we're talking about a cosmology then that includes uh, highly evolved spiritual beings. It includes a wide array of physical beings from other planets at different levels of spiritual and uh, technological evolution. Uh, it includes uh, evolved humans like ourselves, sages and uh, yogis, uh, uh, who who have developed many uh, attainments on on this realm, and all of these uh, beings are uh, interacting with each other and have been interacting with each other for thousands of years, millions of years. Uh, what it does is, I think, it engenders a sense of humility. You know that were not the masters of the universe, so to speak, that there are other factors that need to be considered. You know, that, that you know, just like in any city that we live in, you know, we, we, we have water, we have electricity, we have so many things that we take for granted and we don't recognize that there are highly intelligent engineers and people that are responsible uh, for us having these things we take so much for granted, like electricity, power, uh, communications, food, so many things. So, actually, according to the Vedic cosmology, our whole universe is arranged like that. There are uh, demigods, suras, who are in charge of providing what, what we regard as the necessities of, of, of life in, in the cosmos. So, this is, if this is forgotten, then we get in trouble. Just like when there's some big natural disaster, then we suddenly appreciate, you know, the people who, and engineers and others who have supplied us with water, with electricity, and other things. So, and if we 
misuse these things, then things are pretty bad. You wind up in big trouble, like climate change because of our misuse of resources in an unsustainable way and things like that. There's more to it than just the physical misuse of resources. If the uh, demigods aren't satisfied with the way that we're behaving, they may restrict our access to certain resources. That's part of the Vedic cosmology as well, that there is a necessity for recognizing these uh, entities and properly relating with them. In other words, you're suggesting that there's a hierarchy and, and a kind of a, a cosmological order to things. Yes, and I, I think that's part of a great many wisdom traditions in the world. They recognize that. Uh, it's, I mean, the alternative is to think, well, it's, there's nothing in control of it. Uh, we're accidental beings existing in an accidental u universe. And it's just ours to make what we want of it. And let's just uh, compete with each other to see who comes out on top. China, Russia, the United States, whatever. You've given me a lot of food for thought today, Michael. I, I have one other question I'd like to pursue with you. Uh, in the Western tradition, in particular the Western spiritualist tradition, and in many other religions, there's a sense of ancestor worship that our ancestors, uh, once they die, they are in heaven, they are closer to the deity, and we can they they become like angelic figures who mediate between our world and and higher spiritual realms but in the vedic tradition my understanding is that uh, reincarnation is considered more uh, what happens after death and and so that uh, ancestor worship wouldn't uh, be appropriate in a culture that uh, accepts reincarnation, and, and I wonder if you have any reflections on that. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point. I would say it's a little more complex than you've put it, because there is a kind of ancestor worship in traditional Vedic or Hindu thought, and it has to do with the concept of offering what's called shraddha, and Shraddha means an offering to a departed soul. And even in reincarnation, there's a difficulty that can occur. When a soul leaves a body, it goes along, along with the soul goes its subtle mental body. And according to the state of the subtle mental body, one will get another gross physical body in the next life. That's what reincarnation is. However, what can sometimes happen is that a soul will leave 
its gross physical body at the time of death, along with its mental body, in which its desires and ambitions are stored. And it won't get another gross physical body. It will remain in the form of what we would call a ghost, which means it has all of its desires, but no machinery to carry them out. So sometimes to ensure against the possibility that that does not happen to one's relative who has departed, one's ancestor, you could say, there is a specific yagya or sacrifice or ceremony that is performed, uh, this shraddha offering. And there's even a, a city in India that's completely dedicated to that, like a pilgrimage place where people go to specifically offer that shraddha ceremony and uh, to deliver their ancestor from the possibility of having to remain somewhere as a ghost. So it, it's not completely absent from the Vedic tradition. Because it, it strikes me that uh, if we uh, accept that there are uh, biological entities like ourselves, uh, ourselves on many other planets, that to the extent that humans have other realms, as you mentioned, a mental realm, a causal realm, a, an astral realm, which is described in the Upanishads uh, uh, a, or the Bardo planes as described in uh, Buddhism. Uh, yes. extraterrestrial beings, if they're highly evolved, would be aware of this as well. And in fact, there are many accounts in the UFO literature of interactions between deceased humans and extraterrestrial entities. Yes, you're absolutely right about that. Uh, there's actually a whole system for handling souls that leave bodies you know, determining their next destination, what planet or level they'll be on, what type of body they'll have. You could say that in the Vedic cosmology, the whole universe or system of universes is uh, an arrangement for moving souls, conscious selves from one level to another, from one type of body to another. And there are beings, higher beings, that are connected with that. There's uh, Yamaraj, for example, the uh, Lord of Death. Uh, it's stated that at the time of death, uh, a soul, a conscious self, will be taken to the court of Yamaraj, and they'll have uh, the record of the activities that one performed in one's past life. And they'll go through that record with with the the soul, and they'll on the basis of that they'll be taken to another planet or return to the earth planet and given a certain type of body in a certain family or species of life. And there are uh higher beings called Yamadutas, who are the servants of Yamaraj that kind of arrange for the transportation of the uh, 
conscious self. And then there are Vishnu Dutas, uh, representatives of the supreme conscious being who sometimes interfere in these things because sometimes the Yamadutas make mistakes. They don't take the right soul. They make a mistake or a misjudgment about what the destination of the soul is. Is it two higher realms or lower realms? And these Vishnadutas will intervene. Now, there's one account in the Bhagavad Purana of uh, a person named Ajamil. You know, at the time of death, when his soul was leaving his body, you could say the Yamadutas came and were taking him away. It's kind of like the, uh, the bad cops, you could say, were taking him away. And you know, the Vishnadutas came and said, no, 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 you can't take him. He's, he's done some really spiritual things. He looks like a very bad guy, but his heart's in the right place. So what happened is, is that he had a near-death experience. Like he, he died, but he was allowed back in his body. And he kind of cleaned up his act a little bit. And then at the end of his life, he went to a good place, you could say. Michael Cremo, I want to thank you very much for this conversation. You've certainly presented a, a big picture within which so many of uh, the diverse uh, technological and paranormal developments that are coming to the fore now can be understood. So I, uh, I very much appreciate having this time with you. It's really always an amazing experience for me to be speaking with with you. You draw things out of me sometimes that I, I, I don't even expect myself. Well, thank you very much for being with me, Michael. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.